Romans 1, 19 through 32 in the New Revised Standard Version, and also 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11 from the Revised Standard Version. Ever since the creation of the world, God's eternal power and divine nature, invisible though they are, have been seen and understood through the things God has made. So they are without excuse. For though they knew God, they did not honor him as God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, because they be, and they became futile in their thinking, and their senseless hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling a mortal human, or birds, or four-footed animals, or reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over in the desires of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who was blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them over to dishonorable passions. Their females exchanged natural intercourse for unnatural, and in the same way, also the males, giving up natural intercourse with females, were consumed with their passionate desires for one another. Males committed shameless acts with males and received in their own persons the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them over to an unfit mind and to do things that should not be done. They were filled with every kind of injustice, evil, covetousness, malice, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, craftiness. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, rebellious towards parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. They know God's decree that those that, who practice such things deserve to die, yet they not only do them, but even applaud others who practice them. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor robbers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. Before we get started, uh, I would like to pray for us. And while I pray, I'm going to sit down. Because in my prayer, it's going to be a confession to the Lord. And it's going to be a confession to our audience and to those that are watching at home. And therefore, I'm just going to sit, okay? Will you pray with me? God, I confess before you today that because of my own sweet children, I want these scriptures to mean something different than what I was traditionally taught. And God, I know I come to this set of scriptures with that bias. But I've also come to learn that God... Maybe you don't see those scriptures the way I was, I was traditionally taught either. And maybe there is a better way and a different way to see things. God, I also confess that I don't know what it's like to be gay or lesbian or transgendered or intersexed or asexual. I, I don't know what that feels like. This is not my experience. And so I cannot adequately fully teach this lesson without acknowledging that. I also confess that I have gotten this wrong in the past and I have been less than kind and less than loving 
and more judgmental and more haughty and arrogant because it wasn't my experience. So God, I pray this morning as we come to this text together that you would hear us in our humility and hope that you would speak a word to us this morning that would encourage, maybe enlighten, maybe challenge, but that we might see it in a different way and that we would leave this place willing to love better, to love smarter, and to embrace harder. And I pray all these things in your son's name. Amen. Okay, what a fun topic, right? Not heavy at all. I was just uh, thinking... I don't know of any other congregation that I've ever been a part of in the past that I could ever teach this. I don't think, they're, I don't think they exist. So I consider it a privilege that we sit here together and we can embrace this topic, this subject, in the way that we do. Let's talk about the scripture for just a second. Any thoughts about those scriptures we just read? that Laura just read for us. They're kind of heavy, right? Kind of, they're a lot. I remember in 2012 when I first started wrestling with this, I had a friend of mine who was a preacher, and, and he said, well, good luck with that. He was, he was affirming. I wasn't at that time. I just knew that I loved my kid. I didn't know anything beyond that. And um, I remember him telling me, all of the scriptures in the Bible that talk about homosexuality, the small set of scriptures, you, you, there's an explanation for. You can get there. But Romans 1 is a whole different animal because Romans 1 is a little bit more or a lot of bit more explicit. Well, I've never minded a challenge. So I've told you this story before. In 2012, my son was outed to me by his biology teacher in... Um, East Limestone High School, Alabama. She outed him to me because she was a Christian and she knew that I was a Christian and she thought that I would need to know that because she thought that I would be alarmed, upset, da-da-da. And so with all of my questions that I didn't know where to go to get an answer, none of the resources that I had that I had relied on in times past were available to me in my home. I knew I had to look for something different. And so I called my, my pastor, Robbie, who was also my professor, and I was an undergrad at the time, and he, he suggested that I write a paper on it and do the work and do the research. So I did. On the other side of that paper, I was affirming. I was inclusive. I no longer saw it as sin. I saw it as something very different from what I had been taught but I didn't know how to explain that to other people around me. Like my more traditional conservative friends were like, how did you get there? We've heard you teach the Bible for 20 years. You've never said anything like this. Where did you get that? And I, it was just like this scramble in my brain of how do I explain this to somebody that really doesn't want to know? They really don't want to know. They just want to argue, right? And so that really bothered me. So when I went back to, when I went back to, graduate, to graduate school, I thought, I'm going to do my dissertation in this. 
And so I wrote a 120-page paper on same-sex eros and biblical interpretation. It was a lot of fun. A lot of fun. Here's the thing. If those same people were to come to me today and ask me how did I get there, I could sit down and have that conversation with them. But unless they're willing to just love my kids, I ain't got time for it. You don't have time for that. There are people that are in this fight with us that are not interested in listening with the opportunity of, I might change my mind. I will say there are people out there that do feel that way. Maybe they have a grandkid that's gay. Maybe they have a, a brother or sister that's gay, and they're thinking, but the Bible says this, and I really want to know. Those are people to have good faith conversations with, and those people are worthwhile having conversations with. So I'm not saying that we shut the door on people that don't see it our way. I don't think that works at all. So I want to start with this Romans 1 passage. I'm not even going to touch the Old Testament. We can do that another time. But before we get into this Romans 1 passage, I want to, I want to set this up for us. This Romans 1 passage that we just read, there's a lot of context that we, may, that we are not aware of right out the gate. We have to know what Paul is speaking into. When Paul looks around his environment and his culture, what is he seeing? So let's get started there. First, in Greco-Roman society in, first century, in the first century, it was generally thought that men would want to have sex with either sex. There was no idea of a sexual preference or an orientation. It was... If a man wants to have sex with a man, he can have sex with a man. Okay. He can also have sex with a woman. Men would want to do both. So there was this idea of you could choose. We know better now, but they didn't then. We choose, right? There would have not been a notion of a Roman man sleeping with another man thinking, oh, my dude over here only sleeps with men, because he probably didn't probably was a married man. So sexual preference and sexual orientation was not imagined during this time. Same-sex relations were considered to be an excess of sexual drive. Let me explain this. They believed that all men, and let's just be honest, we're talking about a culture that's driven primarily by men, and we don't have a lot of information about women in this time and their preferences because nobody cared. It was assumed they didn't have pleasure anyway, so they were irrelevant. It was all about the guy. Some things never change in some context. But it was thought of as excess. It was thought of if a man had a, had a gay lover, it was thought that that was his excess. He could be satisfied by his wife, and he didn't need the guy. But maybe because he was wealthy, because he had the the status in life to have a male slave or, or he could be a pederast. He had the opportunity to have sex with guys. So it was over and above. It was an indulgence. This was not a preference for men. It was just that it was an extra way of enjoying sex. It was, there was no idea that a man would exclusively want to have sex with another man. Also, the Greek ideal of beauty was completely on the outside. 
They didn't look at somebody and think, oh, she's beautiful on the inside and the outside. That's not how they viewed people. They viewed people very superficially, what looked good on the outside. Again, some things never change. Robin Scroggs, one of the um, scholars that I've read a lot of, he wrote a book, and this was in 1983. So some of the language that I'm going to share with you today is going to be a little outdated. Take it for what it is. He said, ancient pinups. Y'all remember a pinup, right? Does everybody remember a pinup from back in the day? Ancient pinups were much more likely to be of a boy rather than a female. To be blunt and gross about it, <laughs> the ideal beauty for a Greek male was a young boy, hairless, little rouge on the cheeks, looking a little bit more feminine, not, muscular, defi not defined muscularly yet. That was their ideal of beauty. And those, we have found these ancient pinups that show us that, that this is what they enjoyed looking at. To them, this was beautiful. And that leads us to the practice of pederasty. Now, this was practiced by the Greeks and the Romans, although the Romans had a different spin on it, and I'm going to share that in just a minute. And it's important that we distinguish this. So the, 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 it was, pederasty was also socially acceptable. Let me just throw that out there. It was socially acceptable for people to do this. So an older, wealthy male would take a younger male, young boy, young teenager, to train him under his wing, so to speak. He would train him militarily, but he also would take him as his lover. This older male would likely be married, but have this relationship with a boy too. Now, there's three types of pederasty that we know of. One form of pederasty was for the boy to come from a noble, wealthy family with the permission of the boy's father. I'm putting you with this older man to train you. Now, you knew what that included. But this was, this was perceived as socially acceptable. This was a good thing. Those consensual relationships would last until the boy became older or potentially of an age to get married. Now, here's where the sexually frank language comes from. Let me grab a drink of water. Oh, that prudish Mississippi girl comes out every time. So, this is harder than I thought it was going to be. Oh, am I blushing? <laughs> okay, thanks. Okay, these relationships were not based on equality at all. There was no, it was not a sexually reciprocal relationship. It was a passive lover and an active lover. The passive lover, you following my hands so I don't have to talk about it that much? I'm sorry, I'm prude, I'm sorry. The passive lover, the active lover. And the active lover was what the older male would always be. It didn't matter about the passive lover, didn't care. It was all about the active lover. Now. To, to take that a little bit further, they also saw the woman at all times as the passive because a woman didn't experience pleasure. She was always passive. So if you were a Greek male, or especially if you were a Roman male, you did not. You were not the passive. You were always the active. You were always the guy on top. Dear God, help me. Thank you, Chris. Thank you. I, I just saw Chris out here, and he's really good at this thing. I thought, boy, I should have gotten Chris to preach this. <laughs> now you know why I prayed beforehand. Another form of pederasty was slave prostitution. 
Now, this was the preference of the Romans. Not that they didn't partake of that older male, younger boy kind of situation. They did, but that was a prefer- usually a Greek thing. But the Romans, uh, there, were bar- there were brothels that catered to the pederast by offering young boys. But this practice, this slave prostitution, was the master taking advantage of his boy slaves. For the Roman male, this was way more honorable than having sex with a male of equal stature. If a man, whatever level they were in stature, to have a sexual relationship with another man of equal or better stature stature was shameful. So for the Roman male, it always had to be someone less than him. And it was considered socially acceptable. It was the norm. It was expected. And the last form of pederasty that I'm going to throw out there, and it's the one that the Greeks and the Romans both excoriated. And this is a phrase that I cringe saying it. It's from my 1983 book by Robin Scroggs, and he calls it the effeminate cowboy. It's a problematic descriptor. I get it. But these were free young boys who sold themselves for the purpose of providing sexual gratification to other men. They were also seen as men that could receive pleasure even if they were the passive, and that was just an anathema to these Greek and Roman males. I'm sure they partook of it when they wanted to, let's just be honest. That's been what we say we don't like, we wind up doing anyway. That's just been our history. I thought this was interesting. Mark Anthony, as in Cleopatra, as in Elizabeth Taylor and Richard Burton, Cleopatra. Some of you don't know what I'm talking about. I'm sorry. Uh, Richard Burton played Mark Anthony in the, the Cleopatra story. Uh, he, he was labeled an effeminate cowboy back in the day, labeled by Cicero and Josephus. He is accused of holding the passive role. Again, you don't do that. Becoming a harlot, being taken into the house of a youth as a mistress, to which young Anthony is said to have functioned as a wife, which was the lowest of the lows for Greek and Roman males. These young boys would try to continue their boyishness for a long time because they were of use they, before they got discarded. They would, like I said earlier, they would shave, they would um, rouge their cheeks, they would fix their hair in ways that made them appear more feminine for a longer amount of time. So we've looked a little bit at the Greco-Roman view of same-sex eros. Now let's look at the Jewish one, particularly from Paul's very Jewish lens, okay? Now, pederasty was the predominant form of same-sex eros in Paul's day. It was assumed that these men didn't have to practice sex this way. It was viewed as an excessive need for sex, above and beyond what they could receive from their, their wives at home. Now, I like to joke about this all the time, so if it's offensive, I'm sorry. I hope it's not. I'm going for it. (laughs) In Paul's day, there were no Ellen and Porcia de Rossi's walking around the streets of Rome. There were no Neil Patrick Harris's and David Burke's. That was not a thing. Monogamous, loving, uh, consensual, covenantal relationship. That just didn't happen. So what Paul was seeing was more of this pederastic practices. For Paul, the world he was in, sex was transactional. Relationships were not held to standards of covenant, and exploitative sex was all around. Romans 1 is describing describing this kind of sex. 
pederasty, slave prostitution. Would Paul have chosen a different word, different language for Romans 1, had he known that consensual, monogamous, committed same-sex couples existed? I don't know. But it's certainly not what he's talking about in Romans 1. So what is Paul trying to accomplish with this passage? What is he talking about? Why is he talking this way? Who is his audience? And this is a crucial for our understanding of this. His audience were Jewish Christians, were Jewish believers, were Jewish followers of Jesus. He was trying to get them to focus. His goal was to get them to focus on loosening their prejudices against Gentiles because Paul knew the Gentiles were going to be allowed to be grafted into the tree too. But he knew that the Jewish people had such a deep-seated prejudice against anybody that was not like them that it was going to be hard to get them to accept that. So he's working. He starts in Romans 1. We've got to start somewhere. This passage in Romans 1 is how the Jewish people saw the Gentiles. So he's saying all of this in front of an audience that is essentially sitting back going, yep, yep, that's exactly what they do. That's it. Mm -hmm. Every one of them Gentiles. They're awful. That's what he's doing. But what he does, <laughs> what he does at the end of Romans 1, he says, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them over to an unfit mind and to do things that should not be done. They were filled with every kind of injustice, da-da-da-da-da-da, you know the rest. They know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, yet they not only do them, but they even applaud others who practice them. Again, the Jewish people are sitting there, yep, that's what they do, that's it. And then, and then Paul says, therefore, you are without an excuse. Uh-oh, wait a minute, what? What happened? When you judge others for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, are doing the very same things. It was this understanding that Jewish people did not practice same-sex eros. Of course they did. But it was this common understanding that they didn't because they considered it unclean because of the Levitical laws. Did they practice it? Of course they did. Of course they did. But they didn't see themselves as that person. Those were the Gentiles, not them. And Paul says, you ain't doing much better. Quit judging them. You see the Gentiles unfairly and prejudicially. You have dehumanized them. Paul was leveling the playing field. We're all here, guys and girls. We're all here. Ain't none of us better than the other no matter what we do. We're here. In the message, Romans 2 verse 1 says, If you think that leaves you on the high ground where you can point your finger at others, think again. Every time you criticize someone, you condemn yourself. It takes one to know one. Judgmental criticism of others is a well-known way of escaping detection in your own crimes and misdemeanors. But God isn't so easily diverted. He sees right through all those such smoke screens and holds you to what you've done. They're being called out. They're being called out. 
So what did Paul mean? And so the, the purpose of it is for reconciliation. He wants them to see the Gentiles on the same level playing field as them. You're no better. We all need Jesus. We all need Jesus. They do, we do, we all do. So what did Paul mean when he called them dishonorable passions? We're going to get in a little bit of weeds here, so bear with me. The Greek word used here for dishonorable means culturally shameful. I want you to park that in your brain. Dishonorable in Romans 1 means culturally shameful. Paul also uses this phrase in 1 Corinthians when he says, Does not even nature teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? Well, we don't think of men having long hair as a disgrace. But in Paul's day, it was culturally unacceptable. Not evil. Not worthy of condemnation to hell. It was a violation of cultural norms. What were Paul's cultural norms? That men and women make babies. They bear fruit and multiply. Jewish cultural norms were that only procreative sex was authorized by God. That was the right kind of sex and the only kind of sex. Procreative. When Paul uses the phrase, males committed shameless acts, this word shameless is a Greek word that means unseemly or indecent. It is directly connected to the idea of engaging in same-sex acts that were performed in public spaces or in conjunction with pagan temple idol worship, which would have been horrifying to a Jew. So this, this phrase, their females exchange natural intercourse for unnatural, and in the same way also the males giving up natural intercourse with females were consumed with their passionate desires for one another. What does Paul think is natural and unnatural sex? I just said it. Procreative is natural sex. Neither of these two verses describe, demonstrate procreative sex. And look, we could spend a whole lot of time on Romans 1. But I'm not going to because we don't have time. And so we come on to the, the scripture in 1 Corinthians. And I, in, the, in the RSV in 1946, those editors made the disastrous decision to take two Greek words, put them together, smush them together, and create the word homosexual. And that's not what those words mean. And so I have this up here on the screen. I will say that the RSV, the, the edit, some editors have uh, updated this version and no longer uses that word. But here's the thing. The damage is done. The damage got done, right? Because some of our other translations just heaped on that. And so that, those are the words that we are familiar with. One book, I, I have so many resources on this, and they are just battered and beaten up. But I'm, I'm, if you want to read any of these or borrow any of these from me, please let me know. I'll be happy to let you see them. So Colby Martin in his book, Unclobbered, says these shameless acts, they are outside the bonds of good and healthy expressions of sexual activity. When taken together with the dishonorable acts, what emerges is a heavily prejudiced Jewish picture of Gentiles who have rejected God, turned toward idolatry, and have been given over to distorted sexual practices that offend and are contrary to Jewish purity laws and cleanliness customs. As Martin says, a, per a person's sexual orientation and egalitarian same-sex relationships simply just did not exist in this world. 
So this word, malakoi, in our phase, these Greek words, these wonderful Greek words, let's talk about them for just a second. This malakoi means weakling, wanton, debauchers, licentious, sensual, effeminate, male, prostitutes, soft. That very last one, soft, that's the one. Malakoi is used in a couple of other verses in Matthew 11:8 and Luke 7:25, the same exact word, soft, is used in those scriptures, and it's talking about material. It's talking about a rich guy that's got really nice material to wear for his cloak, and it's soft. It feels good. And for phase, it means it's a compound word. Our sin means male, and coitus means bed. I guess you could see where we get the word coitus from this word, right? This is the first time this is ever used in ancient literature. Paul has no contemporaries that uses this word. It's like he made up a word to try to describe something. Now, this word got picked up later on down the road, but he just made this up. He just made this word up. So according to Matthew Vines, this word soft, this word malakoi, in a moral context, the term was used to describe a lack of self-control, weakness, laziness, or cowardice. It was anything considered feminine. What's so interesting about this word, and the Theo bros are losing their mind over Twitter, on Twitter about this. I, there's this thing going on with effeminacy in, on Twitter right now. It's the craziest thing. I'm like, guys, go pastor your churches. Who has this kind of time to argue on Twitter as much as you do? It's ridiculous. Anyway, this word malakoi or malakokos was most often used in the context of men being susceptible to the charms of women. Think henpecked or, you know, letting the wife wear the pants in the family. This is what malakoi was. And then there's arsenokoifes. It's a very, again, it's a very rarely used word. It appears to be made up. And here's the thing. The writers of the 1946 RSV version took those two words and made up homosexual. This is what that means. How can we possibly know that? How can we possibly know that for sure? It's a guess. It's just a guess. Because nobody knows for sure. Because nobody really knows what the hell that Arsenio Coifes means. It's a guess. There are so many different people you could listen to and go to to get some information about how to interpret these verses, these very few verses in the Bible. And for every scholar or theologian or academic that says, that eh, does not mean what we think it means. Of course, God loves everyone. And then there's, there's ten more that say it means exactly that. They're not going to heaven. Did you notice the rest of that list in 1 Corinthians? What, what all was it now? Thieves, greedy, drunkards. I've been known to get drunk on an occasion or 20. Uh, I'm, I can be pretty greedy, greedy too. So I don't get to go to heaven 
just because I had a little bit much too wine? Is that what that's saying? Michael Vassy, who's another scholar that I read, says this. These are, I'm going to give you a couple, of interpret, a couple of ways to think about these verses differently. But he says, Imperial Rome same-sex activity was strongly associated with idolatry, slavery, and social dominance, often the assertion of the strong over the bodies of the weak. Now, there ain't nothing good about that assertion. Could Paul have been speaking out against this kind of assault on bodies? Dale Martin says, this is my favorite. This blew my mind. This absolutely blew my mind. I hope it blows yours too because I would just love to be in the same boat together on this. Dale Martin says that of the few uses of the word arsenokoiphase in Greek literature outside the New Testament, it concerned economic exploitation and abuses of power, not same-sex behavior. Or, more precisely perhaps, economic exploitation and violence in the sex business, as in pimping and forced prostitution. Economic exploitation. Hmm. David Gushy asked the question, how might the history of Christian treatment of gays and lesbians have been different if arsenokoifes had been translated sex trafficker, or sex exploiter, or rapist? or sexual predators. The message translation comes close to saying it like this. Don't you realize that this is not the way to live? Unjust people who don't care about God will not be joining in his kingdom. Those who use and abuse each other use and abuse sex. Use and abuse the earth and everything in it don't qualify as citizens in God's kingdom. Now to wrap this up. Everything I just said to you was not a sermon. Not in any shape, form, or fashion, it was not a sermon. It was a teaching, it was a class, and it was just information for you to have, for you to explore further, to delve in more deeply. It's there. I can help you on that journey if you want more clarification. I'm here for you. We can do that. This is the sermon. If you choose the Bible, I'm going to smile while I say it and try, to get, try not to get angry. Because I have kids, you know, you just, when it's your babies, it's everything. If you choose the Bible to condemn someone for their sexuality, their gender, their asexuality, their preferred pronouns, their choices on who they sleep with, you are wrong. The Bible does not prop up this judgment. It just doesn't. If this is you, you have left the heart of Christ. You have left your first love. And the shame is on you, not them. God help you. When I first, de- was, first began deconstructing this harmful biblical interpretation back in 2012, my first overarching purpose was to prove to myself and my kid that they weren't going to hell when they died. Because this kid knew the Bible as well as I did. And the first thing he said to me, he said, 1 Corinthians says I go to hell. And my first my response right out of my mouth was, no, that's not what that means. I didn't know that that's not what that meant, but I just know that can't be possible. So that was my first foray into it. Somewhere along the way, I just wanted to be right. Oh, I like being right. 
quiet, Terry. <laughs> Nobody asked you. I just wanted to be right. I just wanted to convince everyone around me in Mississippi and Alabama that they were wrong and I was right. I'm the enlightened one. You're the bad one. Now, <laughs> I just don't care about being right. I just don't. If you love my kid, I'm good. If you think my kid is wrong, that's on you, not me. I have people in my life that love my kid. My kids, they disagree with how they live their lives, as they would put it. But they love my kids, and they treat them very well. And for that reason, they're still in my life. But you best believe if that ever changes, they're out. I want to be loving. I don't want to be just right. Y'all are making me cry. <laughs> because it's important. It's okay. It's important. And if you're watching, if you're in this room and you're like, I still have a hard time reconciling these Bible verses with, it's okay. Keep wrestling. Keep wrestling. That's important. But the most important thing is you just be loving. Can we at least the hell do that? Just be loving? I hope <laughs> that we can just be more loving.